Father, in the power of your spirit, show us your son through the proclamation of your word. Amen. Everybody loves a good jigsaw puzzle, right? Okay, maybe not everybody. Honestly, I, I can't stand them, but I, I, get, the, I get the appeal. <laughs> I get the appeal. You know, sometimes you're putting together a jigsaw puzzle, and you already know what the picture's going to be, right? You've got the box, and it's just, you've got the picture there, and it's just a matter of getting the pieces in the right place to make the image. Sometimes you're doing a jigsaw puzzle, and you don't know what the picture's going to be. I've got a couple of these apps on my phone, and the kids love it, but you're, you're putting pieces together, and every single piece that you put together, it reveals something new. Sometimes you can kind of guess where it's going, but sometimes... It doesn't really make sense until you put that last piece in there and then you see the picture clearly and you have that kind of aha moment. Ah, I see it clearly now. Now, without sounding too cheesy, Jesus is like a puzzle to us sometimes, if we're honest. N.T. Wright once wrote, he said, look, he said, Jesus is so unlike anybody we know that we are forced to ask, as the people at his time evidently did, who is this? Who does he think he is? And who, in fact, is he? See, people listened to him, and they said things like, we've never heard anything like this before. They, they weren't talking about his tone of voice or his public speaking. He goes on to say, he goes, Jesus puzzled people then, and he still puzzles us today. I think he's right on this. Jesus is a puzzling figure because he's so vastly different than anything and anyone we've known or anything we could ever expect or even guess. I think that's why there's so many different views of Jesus out in the world, right? If you think about it, you've got the picture of Jesus, the great moral teacher. You've got a picture of Jesus, the new age guru. You've got a picture of Jesus, the social reformer and so on and so forth. Well, even amongst followers of Christ, we still have varying pictures of who we believe and who we think Jesus is. Now, sometimes as we grow, sometimes our understandings of Jesus change, right? Now, some of us, for example, grew up in a very fundamentalist and legalistic culture, and as we grew, maybe we came face-to-face with the, the doctrine of grace, and we read it somewhere, or we heard it somewhere, and it, and it changed our view of Jesus, and it kind of brought us face-to-face with the Jesus we never knew, to quote Philip Yancey. Or maybe it went the other way. Maybe we've lived life so long that we rearrange the pictures, and we get this picture of a Jesus who looks at our life and just allows us to live any way that we want to live. It's a picture of Jesus who looks at us and says, ah, it's all good. It's cool. Just do whatever you want. It's fine. Well, that picture of Jesus doesn't really challenge us. That's a picture of Jesus that doesn't call us up to a higher way of life, and it's a picture of Jesus that definitely does not call us to take up our cross. And it's easy to see that that's a Jesus that the world loves to believe in. And if we're honest with ourselves, we kind of like to believe in him too. Because the Jesus that kind of looks at our lives and just says, hey, it's all good, is, is a, a Jesus that conforms to our own personal agenda. And that's a Jesus that conforms to our own wants and, and needs that we think that, that uh, the things that we need in order to be satisfied. It's a Jesus we can control. But sooner or later, we find that a Jesus that we can control is an insufficient Jesus. 
Jesus is a puzzling figure to the world. He's puzzling to us, and that's okay. But what it means, though, is that we need to constantly let Jesus himself show us who he is. We need to let Jesus himself maybe rearrange those pieces of the puzzle so that we can see the picture clearly and fully who Jesus is. So I believe that the passage we're going to look at today in our scriptures is going to do this very thing for us. I believe the passage we're going to look at is we're going to see Jesus himself rearranging the puzzle so that we can see him more clearly today. So if you have your scriptures, let me invite you to turn with me to John chapter 6. We're going to be in John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. It's the gospel passage we read just a little bit ago. And it's St. John's version of that classic story where Jesus feeds 5,000 plus people with only five loaves and two fish. Now, as you're turning there, let me say this. This is the only miracle that occurs in all four gospels. This is the only one. And what I find fascinating is that every single gospel writer adds some piece of information about this event that's unique to their own gospel. Now, these, these, uh, this information is not contra- contradictory. But what they are, they act kind of like pieces of a puzzle that when you put them together, you can kind of see the picture clearly. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the piece that St. John gives to us today. Because I think it's an important piece that when it's put there in its proper place, um, we're able to see clearly who Jesus is. So let's read this together. John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is, in, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Let's stop there. So the passage that we're looking at this morning, it starts out with, after this. So I think the most natural question to ask is, after what? Right? Context is important, and I think context is important even in this case, even more so because this particular event occurs in the middle of a narrative that spans like three chapters. And it's the narrative context that helps us get the the right interpretation of what's going on. So let me see if I can just summarize the the context a bit. Starting back in chapter 4 of John, John meets a woman at a well. And during their conversation, he explains that he can give living water. And whoever drinks of this living water will never thirst again. Well, in that conversation, she realizes, hey, this is the Messiah. And she runs back to her village and essentially becomes the world's first evangelist. She goes to to all the people and she says, says, come see this person. He could be the Christ. Come and see. From there, Jesus goes to Capernaum. And he meets an official who has a sick child. Jesus heals that official's child. From there, he goes to Jerusalem, starting in chapter 5. And in chapter 5, he comes to the pool of Bethesda, and he meets a guy who's been paralyzed for 38 years, and he heals them. Well, the problem with that is that he heals them on the Sabbath day, which, as we all know, is a big no-no. And so the, the Jewish leaders come and confront him. Well, when they confront him, what Jesus says in response, he says, look, my father has been working until now. And I am working. Well, they didn't set well with the Jewish leaders because they heard what he meant loud and clearly. In chapter 5, verse 18, 
He says, this is why the Jews were seeking to kill, to kill him all the more. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his father and making himself equal with God. If you have one of those Bibles where all the words of Jesus are red letters, then after that, you've got a lot of red ink on your page. Because <laughs> Jesus goes through a whole discourse explaining to the Jewish leaders and calling them out for their unbelief. In the middle of that discourse, Jesus says that he is the son whom the father has sent into the world and that he does nothing except what he sees the father doing. Moreover, he goes on to tell them that had they actually believed their scriptures, they wouldn't have missed this fact. They wouldn't have missed this part of the puzzle. He goes on to tell them that not only do they not believe in God, but they also don't believe in Moses. Verse 39 of chapter five, he goes on and he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to me. Yet you refuse to come to me so that you might have life. And he closes and he says, if you actually believed Moses then you would believe me because guess what? Moses wrote about me. They had some puzzle pieces missing, I would think. And so, so that's, the, that's the immediate context. That's the immediate preceding context, at least. And it's important in this event because what we're gonna see, particularly in the event of the feeding of the 5,000, we're gonna see exactly how it is that Moses, who is the great prophet, the great miracle worker, and the great liberator, how he actually points to Christ. How this is that he points to Christ. Before we move on, in John 2, John, uh, in, in, in the first, in, sorry, the second verse here, um, verse 2, John tells the, that there's a large crowd following Jesus. And he says they're following him because he has seen the signs he's been doing among the sick. Say that five times fast. <laughs> Particularly, um, he, all, the, all, the, all the healings and miracles that are, are attracting them. But notice the word that John uses. John does not use the word miracle. He calls them signs. In fact, that's something very unique to the Gospel of John. Everywhere else in the Gospels, they're called miracle, except for John, he calls them signs. What is a sign? What is a sign? Well, a sign is something that points beyond itself, right? It points you in a direction towards a larger reality. Signs help you know where you are. It helps you know where you're going. (laughs) We don't yet have a proper church sign or proper sign at our church office yet. Um, in fact, we still have the old company's sign on our office door. And let me tell you, the UPS drivers and the FedEx drivers have been very confused this week. The, the sign, at least that sign, is pointing them in the wrong direction. John calls miracles signs. But for John, signs are something that are more than simply pointers or markers. A sign is something that participates in that which it points towards. So here's what I mean. When the the sick are healed, when the lame walk, when the dead are raised, when the blind see, that doesn't mean that God is somewhere over there. It means that the Son of God is present, that the Son of God is being experienced right here. The kingdom has come near. They are signs, not that that God is somewhere over there, but that God is here. One writer says, signs are a window into the glory of the incarnate God present in the world. 
Signs show us the nearness of God. And for John, that's his entire agenda. That's John's entire agenda throughout his gospel. In verse, I'm sorry, chapter 20, verse 30, John goes on to write, he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciple. But these that were written were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See the Jewish leaders in chapter five and later if you read on to chapter six, the Jewish leaders missed the signs and by missing the signs, they missed out on life. John does not want us to miss the signs. John wants us to come to Jesus to have life. The signs that, the signs that, are, that other, where, other places are called miracles are signs that point not to a where, but they point to a who. They point to Christ. Let's continue on, verse three. It says, Jesus went up on a mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So here, John makes a point to talk about the Passover. He's the only one that makes that point, that it's, it's the time of the Passover, that it, not that it's a few months away, that it's, it's Passover time, it's near. The Passover is one of the greatest festivals for Israel, right? Because it commemorates the single most important event in Israel's history, which is the Exodus. The Exodus is that event which gives Israel its identity as a people of God. It's the time when the Jewish people remember that God is their God because he brought them out of Egypt. He liberated them from their bondage and he brought them into the promised land. Now remember, at the end of chapter five, Jesus is accusing the Jewish leaders for not believing in Moses. If we go on and we read, which we're not going to today, but I commend it for your reading, if we read the rest of chapter six, you're going to see that there are many, many references to Moses and to the Exodus, particularly in reference to the manna that God gave them from heaven, the manna that the Hebrews ate on their Exodus and that sustained them for 40 years until they got to the promised land. The rest of chapter six, Jesus will go on and he'll explain, I am that bread of life. He says, he's that bread of life that came down from heaven and gives life to the entire world. John's reference to the Passover is a key piece of the puzzle because Moses points to Christ. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses is talking to Israel and he tells Israel, he says, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. And so here in chapter six, we see the prophet, the promised prophet that, Mo that Moses prophesied about, here in their midst doing the work of God. And in chapter, I'm sorry, in verse 14, after the people eat the meal, the crowds don't miss this fact. This isn't lost on them. In verse 14, we'll read, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet that has come into the world. The leaders missed it. The crowd didn't. So here we are at the time of the Passover, the remembrance of the great liberation. And John shows us that Jesus is in fact the greatest of liberators. Chronologically, this particular event occurs exactly one year before Jesus goes to Jerusalem on the next Passover. And when he goes into Jerusalem, 
the following year, he will become the final sacrificial Passover lamb. In just one year, Jesus will enter in Jerusalem and his body will be broken on the cross and his blood will be spilled out for the life of the world. And it's just one year before the new exodus and the final exodus is about to take place. And it's a sign that's pointing to a liberator that is greater than Moses. Because Jesus will free Israel, not just from political bondage, but ultimately from their sin. And not just Israel, but the rest of the world from our ultimate bondage, which is, which is sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. I love how Paul explains this because Paul is encouraging the church in Corinth to flee from sinful behavior, and this is what he says. For Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Does that language sound familiar to you? Christ is our Passover. Christ is our Passover. Now, there's one more little key piece to this before I move on. You gotta remember, at this time in Israel's history, yes, they're back in Jerusalem. This is what we read in our Old Testament passage, that they've come back and they've rebuilt Jerusalem, but they're still under political oppression from the Roman Empire. What that means is that there was a belief that they were still in their sins, that in a sense, they were still in exile. The reason why they went into exile in the first place was because of their sin and disobedience. But yet, they've, even though they've come back into the land, they still haven't received that Messiah who's going to, to not only free them from political oppression, but also free them from their sins. And, and even though their understanding of a Messiah, they're missing a few pieces of the puzzle, here's Jesus who comes in and says, no, I'm the Messiah who's going to He's going to liberate you from your ultimate bondage, from sin. And he's going to do that not through violence, not through overtaking, not overtaking the city. He's going to do it through a cross and through the resurrection. Back to our scene, verse 5. Lifting up his voice, or his eyes, sorry, <laughs> lifting up his eyes, then and seeing a large crowd coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to him, for he knew what he was going to do. He said it to test him. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, well, there's a boy here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Now, there's a lot that I could say about this, but let me ask you this question. Is your view of Jesus a Jesus who tests you? The fact that Jesus tests Philip is a key piece. I gotta be honest with you. I'm not too fond of this particular Jesus. I don't like a Jesus that tests me. I don't like tests. If it's a test, it's like, I would much rather it be like, hey, do you have faith in me? Check yes, check no, check yes. Okay, we're good, Let, let's go on with life. But that's not who God is, right? God tests us. Why would Jesus test us? You see, a, a test, in testing us, Jesus expands our faith. He expands our faith by helping us see him more clearly and more fully. When we're tested, 
we get out of our complacency. And it forces us to rely on God and to see him in new ways. You see, testing is, is one of those ways that Jesus rearranges the puzzle pieces so that we could see him more clearly. Other thing that happens when God tests us is that it, it exposes what's in our hearts. Now, Jesus already knows what's in our hearts, right? We see that through the Gospels, that Jesus knows what's in people's hearts and minds. But it helps to expose us. It helps us to see that we really don't have anything that we can offer, that, that whatever we have is probably too insufficient anyways. And it shows us our need for Jesus. Like I said, I don't like a God that tests us, but testing is an important part of our discipleship. Here, Jesus tests Philip, and he says, where are we going, or where are we going to buy bread for these people? Philip goes on to answer, and he, in a, in a, he answers him in this very pragmatic way, right? As does Andrew, right? You know, I can't say that I would have answered any differently. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a natural human reaction. But what happens is that Philip takes stock and he realizes, wow, there's over 5,000 people here and that would just take a lot of money that we really don't have. Basically, what Philip says, as does Andrew, is, Jesus, that's impossible. That's really impossible. And he's technically right. He's technically right they could not have purchased enough food to feed everybody. But maybe if he would have just stopped for a second and remembered who it was that was asking him this question, maybe he would have remembered, wait a minute, this is Jesus. This is the son of the living God. And God has a history of doing the impossible. This is the one who, was raised, who has raised people from the dead. He has healed sick. He has made lame people walk. He has made the, the, the blind to see. But all these guys did was look around at their immediate surroundings and concluded that, it, that this was impossible. The problem was is that they were looking at the wrong things. They were looking at the wrong things, and we do this too. They were looking at everything around them, and they weren't looking at the one who was beside them. In the Old Testament, there's one who gets asked a, a somewhat similar question. God takes Ezekiel, the prophet, to this valley. And this valley is filled with dry bones, right? These, these, these dry bones. And, and uh, what that means is that they've been picked clean. There's no flesh on them. All the scavengers have, have taken everything they wanted. They've been sitting out in the sun for ages and ages and ages. There's really nothing more dead than these bones. They're looking at these bones, and God says, Ezekiel, can these bones live? Ezekiel, can these bones live? Let me suggest to you that Ezekiel's answer is the answer that we should always give when God asks us to do something that seems practically impossible. In chapter 37, verse 4, Ezekiel says, Surely, Lord, you know. Surely, Lord, you know. Ezekiel, can these bones live? Surely, Lord, you know. Philip, where can we buy enough bread to feed all of these people? Surely, Lord, you know. How is the kingdom going to expand in the face of much opposition and no resources? Surely, Lord, 
you know. How are the works that I've given you to do in, in the city of Charlotte going to be accomplished, King of Kings? Surely, Lord, you know. I think that answer comes from a place of great faith and it comes from a great vision of who God is. It's an answer that humbles us and puts us in a place where we can watch, do, we can watch God do incredible things. How is this going to happen? I don't know, but you do. Surely, Lord, you know. I haven't got a clue, but I know that you do. Now, before we too quickly start criticizing Philip and Andrew for not answering that way, let's read on in verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, and so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, and Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to all who were seated, also the fish, and they had as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples to gather up the leftovers so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets with fragments from the barley loaves left over by those who had, who had eaten. Notice this, notice the scene. Jesus has the disciples tell the crowd to sit down. Now the word there that's being used is the idea of like reclining at a table. Basically says, go tell them to get ready to eat. Go prepare yourself for dinner. Now, if this were me, thank goodness it's not, but if this were me, I probably would have said, hold on, Jesus. Hold up, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't we just talk about the fact that there's no food? And you want me to go tell all of these people, you want me to go tell all of these people to sit down and get ready to eat. What's going on here? Right? Notice that Jesus doesn't prepare the banquet first. He doesn't prepare the banquet and say, okay, see, we've already got the food, now you go tell them to go eat and, and, and come on. That's not what he does. He tells them to go tell them to sit down and get ready to eat without even answering Philip or Andrew. So many times when God calls us to do something, we want to know how it's all going to turn out, don't we? We want to know how it's going to work. But more often than not, when God calls us to something, he's more interested in our faith in him than in letting us know how it's all going to work out. Ephesians chapter 2, we read that God has prepared works for us to do. And in that chapter, he doesn't lay out how it's all going to get accomplished. But what he does is he tells us who he is. He tells us who he is and what he has done for us. I probably would have, prepared, would have uh, preferred that he go ahead and prepare the banquet table. But that's not what he does. See, God calls us to, God calls us to, to step out in faith and obedience. And then once we've done that, then we get to see God at work. Notice that it was only once the disciples were obedient to Jesus' commands that they were able to see Jesus at work. And it was glorious, and it was fulfilling, and it was abundant. And they got to participate in the work of God because they stepped out in faith. You know, a similar thing happens at the wedding of Cana back in chapter two. The wine runs out. Everybody kind of freaks out because there's no wine, which means that, of course, they were all Anglicans. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> 
And so Jesus tells them, go get barrels of water. And they're like, well, why do you want us to do that? Just says, go get the barrels of water. He doesn't tell them what he's going to do. They bring the barrels of water. And then of course, he, then he turns the water into wine and then everybody's able to enjoy the works of God. The rest of chapter six continues and Jesus will go into great detail, like I said earlier, how he is the bread of life. And if we believe in him, we will never hunger again. Now that brings out an important subtlety in Jesus's initial question. Where can we buy bread so that these people can eat? You see, the irony here is that Jesus is the bread of life, right? And the irony is that Jesus can't be bought. He can't be purchased. The bread of life is not something we can labor for. It's not something we can work for. It can only be received freely. But sometimes that's not the picture of Jesus that we normally have, is it? Because if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we think it's too good to be true. What do you mean I don't have to do anything but believe in Jesus? You know, sometimes the image of a Jesus who freely gives himself away doesn't always sit well with us, right? We always sometimes say, hey, there's no free lunch, except maybe in this passage. And whenever someone offers us something for free, we're usually very suspicious of them, right? What do you mean you're giving me something for free? But here's Jesus freely offering himself to us. And it doesn't always fit with our preconceived notion of Jesus. Like the crowd in verse 15, who eats of the, eats of the fish and eats of the, the bread, they're excited and they want to go make him king. They try to force him to be king. They try to force him to be, funny enough, they try to force him to be something that he already is, but of course some of their puzzle pieces are missing and they don't get that. But like they try to force Jesus to be something that he's not, we too often try to force Jesus into an image of who we want him to be. And sometimes it ends up being like two puzzle pieces that we think we should go, that you think it should go together because you know, they look similar, but when you put them together, they don't quite fit. And so you kind of keep pushing on them thinking maybe they go and then you realize that they don't and, and obviously they don't go together, but you just try to keep forcing it. That's because Jesus will never conform to our image of him. And that's why we need to let Jesus put these pieces of the puzzle together for us and let him show us who he really is because honestly, who he is in himself is better than any image we could ever create for him ourselves. A major theme that has been running through our lectionary through the, the Lenten season is this idea of seeing Jesus clearly. So as we end, let me ask you some of these questions. What is your picture of Jesus? What is your picture of Jesus? Are there still pieces missing? Is he still a puzzling person to you? You see, I believe that John, I believe that once John puts together all the pieces for us, that we see Jesus, who is the Son of God, who has come down to earth for our sake, so that we might be led out of our sins that keep us in bondage and captivity. Jesus is our Passover. His body was broken for us on the cross and his blood was shed so that we might live. I think in John we see a Jesus who calls us into service and onto mission, having equipped us with his very presence. The feeding of the 5,000 is a sign that points us to Jesus. And so in this Lenten season, 
when things look impossible, when we think, my goodness, is Easter ever going to get here? Let me encourage you to look to Jesus and see the God who does the impossible. May we see the God who, when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, made us alive together with Christ and seated us in the heavenly places with Christ so that we too may eat of the abundance of that heavenly banquet. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.